Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. So this time the podcast episode will be a bit different to the other episodes we have published in the last couple of months and even more than a year. This time we have a special podcast to the annual conference of the International Society of Pharmacoeconomics and Outcomes Research, ISPOR, which was held in November 2022 in Vienna. Besides various different kind of, let's say, educational pieces and also different kind of areas which uh, might maybe not be that relevant for the market access area we are working on, we have, let's say, picked different areas which we will now as well discuss and probably also try to bring a bit closer um, in this episode on eSport. So the first part is on ATMPs and or gene therapies in general. So there was a really interesting educational symposium by Cole and colleagues on gene therapies where they basically asked the question where high promise meets high uncertainty, how should HA methodologies appropriately value and enable access. That was a really good discussion and especially around the standard HGA requirements on randomized controlled trials or RCTs and the issues of running such high quality comparative studies in indications with really very, very few patients. Bamal and colleagues continue with the potential thoughts on the education symposium and pose the question if real-world evidence might drive European, UK and US payer decisions in the reassessment of oncology therapies. Demonstrating clinical benefit to subpopulations and comparing with standard of care were also highly rated during their reassessments. Especially because of the lack of longer-term data at launch and the relatively short duration of registrational trials, payers look to real-world evidence at reassessment to provide meaningful data on over-survival, incidence of adverse events, and comparative clinical and economic data versus the standard of care. Unfortunately, the authors did not answer that question and have also not included any potential learnings from world evidence reassessment in the Netherlands, for example, in the mid of the 2000s. Market Access Transformation and Genesis Research partnered with EMD Serono and Pfizer on a study that explored how HCA bodies and payers in Europe and the United States perceive the use and value of real-world evidence when reassessing oncology therapies. We administered a web-based survey to 30 national and regional payer decision-makers from France, Germany, Spain, the United Kingdom and the United States via the Rapid Payer Response Platform by Market Access Transformation. Use of the online portal allowed us to obtain dynamic payer feedback within a week's time horizon. Within the survey, we asked a broad range of question types, including quantitative rating and ranking questions, with qualitative insight obtained to understand payer thinking on the subject matter. This study builds on the accumulating body of research regarding the use of real-world evidence among different stakeholders and specifically focuses on the importance of evidence types use cases for real-world evidence and preference of endpoint and study attributes by payers to inform their decision-making upon launch of a new oncology therapy. New innovative oncology therapies may receive marketing authorization with evidence deemed insufficient by HDA bodies and payers, for example, single-arm trials, trials with short duration, or surrogate composite endpoints. At reassessment, HCA and payer bodies have an opportunity to evaluate real-world evidence that allow them to mitigate financial risk while ensuring patient access to therapies with appropriate effectiveness and risk profiles. This study, the study results indicate that payers 
perceived clinical trial evidence as being of greatest importance during reassessments of oncology therapies, with real-world evidence ranked next among various payer evidence considerations. Specifically, evidence on real-world clinical benefit and characterization of treatment patterns support trial data, with the primary use cases being real-world effectiveness for 27 out of 30 responders, which is 90% of the SANTI sample, and real-world safety for 80% of this study sample. Payer input also indicated that demonstrating comparative clinical benefit with mature data from the real world versus the standard of care is key in the reassessment stage, especially because of lack of longer-term data at launch and the relatively short duration of registrational trials. Payers look to real-world evidence at reassessment to provide meaningful data on comparative survival, incidence of adverse events, and economic data versus the standard of care. Regarding payer preference for endpoints in real-world studies, overall survival and adverse events with discontinuation rates are perceived of highest value to inform reassessments in oncology. Additionally, payers noted that evidence from prospective observational trials allow for increased control of parameters and minimization of statistical bias, while registries, product or disease-specific are valuable sources of large and long-term data for comparison of multiple therapies. Payer experts in this study also provide opinions on the optimization of methods, quality standards, and communication of real-world evidence to impact future access decisions, use of standardized methods to harmonize real-world evidence study designs and outcomes, as well as publication of study protocols were noted as key elements to maximize value for healthcare systems. Adherence to HTA guidelines and official guidance on best practices can increase payer acceptance of real-world evidence. Payers finally highlighted that evidence generated with rigorous scientific method is expected to be transparently disseminated in peer-reviewed journals and value dossiers to increase confidence and willingness to accept real-world evidence amongst payers. The complete findings of this research will be published shortly in a full paper with the aim to inform the wider debate on how to broaden real-world evidence application and value to support payer decision-making. Batnaga, Vickers and Pickard took another angle of the same issue and discussed if the current trends go backwards, especially in oncology. What do they really mean? Question for them was, if single-arm trials are slowly coming back and play a more prominent role in the decision-making for market access. Maybe it is a combination of the single-arm trials and world evidence. That's at least what we sometimes see, and you might remember that discussion in Germany. Would that combination potentially substitute randomized controlled trials, at least in some circumstances? The future will show that. Another issue was raised by Wutaru and discussed with panelists Briggs, Carlin and Danko. Great panelist session. How should the value of combination therapies be assessed and then priced? Core issue, especially when considering high-cost therapy combinations, are the contributions to the clinical benefit by each of the individual therapies and the monetary value of that. Mostly, this is currently be done by adding a discount to the price of the on-top therapy, which also applied for the marketing authorization, by the way. The question still remains if this might disincentivize innovation and research for combination therapies. Furthermore, how could the market access be handled in countries where one of the underlying combination therapies might not even be available because maybe it was not launched or at least not recommended by the health authorities. Differences between European and US payers was the topic in a panel discussion with Hanman and colleagues. As an example for discussion, the Centeglo case has been utilized. Centeglo withdrew from the European market. The company Bluebird stated that markets are broken in Europe. At the same time, the US ICER stated that Centeglo would be cost-effective at a time span of five years. Anyway, core differences in the different systems, healthcare systems, need to be understood, especially data and evidence requirements, for example, in Europe, in comparison to how US health plans manage the availability of high-cost therapies, for example, by restricting access to pre-selected patients. Mayor Axe and colleagues analyzed then the latest trends for gene therapies in Germany. The biggest issue for benefit assessment within the AMNOC procedure is the missing evidence base given low sample sizes in the target population and other issues. 
Anyway, they concluded that the timely restriction of the benefit assessment combined with the real-world data collection in German Anwendungsbegleitende Datenerhebung might get routine for gene therapies and ATMPs in general. And just by the way, just early November, they have probably foreseen already what is currently even more happening in Germany. Mücke Dalal and Delamano had a detailed analysis of ATMPs and cell therapies across the globe. In the US, they have seen 23 FDA-approved therapies, 13 of which are marketed and reimbursed. In Europe, 21 were European Commission authorized, of which seven have been withdrawn for clinical commercial reasons. In Japan, 14 regenerative medicinal products are PMDA approved and reimbursed, four have conditional limited authorizations. Only five cell or gene therapies, including four CAR T cells and Solgensma, overlap across these jurisdictions. Cell gene therapy with highest unreversible X factory variety. In the US, that was Rhythmic, with a roughly 2.6 million euros of annual therapy cost. In Europe, it was Lipmeldi, with around 3.3 million of annual therapy costs. In Japan, it was finally Solgensma, with roughly 1.17 million of annual therapy cost. Average time to reimbursement. Post-regulatory approval was three weeks in the US, around 15 weeks in Japan, and ranged from 32 weeks in Germany to 88 weeks in France. In total, the authors concluded that the innovation status of ATMPs in general is mainly be recognized also by HDA bodies. However, pricing remains an issue with confidential rebates of up to 40 to 50 percent. Young and Bolzani then went on with ATMPs and they assessed the impact of patient-reported outcomes in reimbursement decisions of ATMPs. In 7 out of 12 ATMPs, PROs were present and hence used in reimbursement procedures. Core issues so far in these evaluations were non-comparative factors of these ATMPs and hence payers and HA agencies were not able to draw conclusions on PRO impacts. So finally, it was not a PRO question, but was rather a, a general study design issue. Wallace and Redman have executed systematic literature search and finally to analyze outcomes-based reimbursement for ATMPs and ended with 15 articles which deemed to be relevant. Descriptive themes were abstracted by them into six analytical themes representing barriers to and opportunities for the increased use of outcomes-based agreements in the routine reimbursement of ATMPs. Suitability and sustainability of innovative payment models, outcomes-based contract development, health system readiness, burden of administration, accelerated access to innovative medicines, and conflicts of interest. The next big bucket would we have then analyzed across the various different posters, discussions, and workshops at ESPOR was EU Joint HCA, one of the big and core themes, obviously, at ESPOR 2022. EU Joint HCA is on its way. Dr. Mittendorf raised the question how to navigate through that new process on top of the existing national and regional HEA processes. Important insights were seen with respect to national changes. Think about the recent changes in Germany, but also in France and further discussions in Italy and also in the UK and potential timing issues at a European level, especially when clinical data and the final indications were not yet decided upon by the EMA and the European Commission, but the EU joint HDA dossier should have been submitted by then. So this might cause a further delay of patient access, especially in comparison to countries like Germany, where product availability is granted at time of dossier submission. Rabati and Rodriguez with colleagues focus on the differences between the existing market access process and the anticipated ones for the EU joint HDA. Core differences in the requirement were population slicing and subgroup analysis, as well as ex the acceptance of study design in general. Furthermore, indirect treatment comparisons were not consistently accepted across different countries. How should this be solved in a pan-European submission, especially keeping in mind potentially different comparators and endpoint? Still big question mark, and we need to see how this could be solved. Katja Rudel discussed the potential trends and surrogate endpoints in the context of European Joint HTA. Another important difference between the, the various healthcare systems and HTA jurisdictions so far. As a case study, the panel was taken 
melanoma and likely discuss the endpoints PFS and response rates in the context of otherwise generally acceptable endpoints such as overall survival, safety, and validated quality of life questionnaires. I think at the end of the day, it was quite clear that there's still some ways to go in order to bring those different kind of endpoints and endpoint assessments also in line between the different authorities, especially if one wants to reduce the number of resubmissions and reassessments, especially of data at the national and regional level. Cooper and colleagues then discussed the potential scenario that new products were not able to meet the potentially new gold standard for EU joint HDA, namely RCTs. What will then happen? EU joint HDA is not binding, but what if cases will be increasing which skip the European submission and directly submit and negotiate with individual countries, especially in the context of further discrepancies between the US and Europe? Ruiz Santos Evo and Marcus Guardian discussed the opportunities of a closer collaboration not only between national HDA agencies and the EU joint HDA agency, but also between payers on European and national level and the corresponding regulatory agencies. Interesting would especially be if the consultations between regulators and payers would be more binding. Furthermore, a more joint approach between both areas could ease research, approval and commercialization driven by the data needs of payers and regulators. Laughlin and colleagues have analyzed best practice HDA methods in the context of new innovative therapies. An important focus was given on the acceptability of new indirect treatment comparison methods, which were mainly rejected. The authors concluded that the current trend of methodologically latest methods might not be accepted by national payers and would likely then also not be implemented at the European Joint HDA level. Another complexity added. Campbell and colleagues tried to analyze a proxy for the acceptance and acceptability of indirect treatment comparison in joint HDAs in the individual country benefit assessments. For that, they have analyzed the 16 identified drugs for which also indirect treatment comparisons were used at a European level so far. However, ITCs were mainly excluded for national submissions, interestingly. If this might change with the EU joint HDA in the future, it's probably questionable. Haptensal compared the reimbursement evaluation process for medical devices in France, Germany and the UK and concluded that these differ significantly. What a surprise. These changes need to be taken into account on market access planning. Walter Dooley and Neuten analyzed the work of the Beneluxa collaboration which Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, Ireland and Austria collaborate on a joint platform for price negotiations. However, the study suggested that a common platform with a similar assessment criteria could ease the entrance into those countries with jointly 43 million inhabitants. Mönland Nesa had a deeper look into the joint scientific consultation and joint clinical assessment in Europe as of now. They recognized that the early consultation with European HA bodies and DMA at the same time could be a benefit for the industry. However, likely time and resource constraints might hinder most companies of benefiting from this new path. Furthermore, there are still many uncertainties around the clinical assessment on the European level, even though that the general method guide follows closely general evidence-based methods. Anyhow, country-specific submissions and negotiations will follow after. At the implementation 2025, a deep follow-up and an analysis of the EU joint HA process is needed. The potential impact of the joint EU HDA in the healthcare systems in Europe has been done by James. He assessed, including interviews, the acceptance between different payer types based on purchasing power and population. The key conclusion, not surprisingly, is that the joint EU HDA approach is generally being valued for further European collaboration. However, he also concludes that the methods within the EU joint HDA would need to be further aligned with countries of high purchasing power and large populations such as Germany and France in order to have the process more likely to be accepted through fewer additional data requests by national HDA agencies. Kruger, Van Engen and others have checked which national systems across EU27 is already ready for the 2025 to be launched EU joint HDA. Important question as we have already heard and seen. And as unfortunately to be expected with the example of oncology, it was shown that most countries are not yet ready. The conclusions, just read it out there from the abstract, 
as an update to a mapping that was done by the Ioneta uh, WP7 in 2018, our analysis shows that large differences in processes between EU member states persist. These differences are likely to impact the national implementation of joint EU HDA across member states, as well as the time, effort and resource used invested by all stakeholders. So let's see if it's really that negative as it was seen by these authors. Bruce and Yap addressed the challenges then ahead to make EU joint HDA a success. Not a surprise also here, Bruce and Jap identified the key areas of difference already within national HDA assessments. Acceptance of comparator, clinical endpoints, indirect treatment comparisons, and the quality of life instruments. The authors now question if the aim of the joint HDA can be achieved in getting additional national submissions down. Cueva et al. did a major analysis on the question if the EU joint HDA is rather a hype or a hope. You have seen already from the various analyses we have now just um, raised in this podcast episode that this is the key question. For that, they analyzed the outcomes of the two biggest countries with also a very advanced benefit and pricing process, namely Germany and France. They found in roughly 50% of assessments different benefit and hence pricing results. Their co-conclusion is hence, if these heterogeneities will not be solved within the EU joint HTA methodology, the EU joint HTA could rather by short time hype without a major impact. These differences between country outcomes were also supported by an assessment of Kasli et al. and their PRISM access database. Also, Gilad and colleagues concluded in their analysis that the acceptance of active contribution by national payers and the pharmaceutical industry are paramount to make EU joint HDA a success story. Almeida and Galtney then finally went into the decision problem to be defined within such a EU joint HDA and concluded, because of the various acceptable comparators, stand of care, that the number of included comparators in such a EU-wide assessment need to be wide, which could then lead to delays of submissions. How the whole kind of EU joint HDA will finally be resolved, let's call it, will be seen. I think the starting point is clear. It will start in 2025. And if all of those kind of issues, I would call it, will be solved by then, it's probably a big, big question mark. The third big bucket we have identified was digital health. Marcus Guardian, a NETA member, reported from the European initiative to harmonize the requirements for digital medical devices. Interesting initial members in this task force are Germany and France. France has agreed to pay for some few digital health devices through the standard reimbursement procedures, whereas Germany has implemented a new reimbursement process for digital health applications, the so-called DIGAS. But taking ready here the need to run German DIGAS studies and the difference between the regulatory and payer requirements with respect to evidence in Germany, it is questionable that such a European approach would be successful in the short run. And just keep in mind how we ended with the last bucket, on the pharmaceutical EU joint HDA. Zhu and Yi ran a literature search extracting the HDA guidelines for digital health interventions. Out of 12 countries, only Germany, France and the UK had specific guidelines for digital health interventions. Canada, Spain and the US do not have specific guidelines, but a dedicated reporting of digital health products. All three available guidelines focus not only on the clinical evidence needs, but also on core technical requirements. UK has on top a regulation for the health economic analysis. Also, Sigur Ferrer and colleagues concluded that no differentiation was made in most countries they analyzed between medical devices and digital health. They strongly suggest the development of such specific guidelines. Walzer, oh, what a surprise, that's me. So I have analyzed together with friends and experts from other countries, key countries in Europe except Germany, as I have handled that. In Germany, the DIGA process has opened up a new opportunity for digital health besides selective contracts with individual insurances. As you might know, the process is very clear with the B farm as the kind of regulatory body and then a submission and afterwards a price negotiation with the statutory health insurance funds with the main body there. In Italy and Spain, it currently looks like digital health is rather handled more thoroughly at a region level. No direct process are yet planned for on a national level. 
In France, there's no specific process for digital health applications, but these are handled currently, and we have heard that also from other authors, through their main medical device process. In the UK, the process for digital health is decentralized, and hence funding decisions are being taken by clinical commissioning groups, CCGs. However, NICE has also developed in the meantime a guideline for digital health. The convergence in Europe with respect to digital health is not yet foreseeable, as we concluded. Drews et al. had a deeper look on the latest DIGA price evolutions and payer views. The average discount of DIGAs within the scope of the analysis was 54%, and the first four negotiations had to be concluded in front of the arbitration board. The analysis, however, did not focus on the core issues of the outcomes by the arbitration board. The pricing of the arbitration board was based on the comparator within the trials of the DIGAs, which was mainly current standard of care, for example, psychotherapy, and added a price premium to it. So finally, as I would see it, if DIGAs would like to achieve a higher price level, the comparison in the clinical trials need to fit to the payer requirements. So BFM was one part, but you need to keep in mind how the price setting is being done, meaning other therapies need to be added potentially then in the clinical trials. Also, I've analyzed together with Lutz Vollmer friends from Decisive, if the DIGA process could be a role model for the UK. The DIGA pathway has shown that a clearly defined pathway could lead to early access to digital health for which the UK could also take some German aspects in their definition in the future into account. These were some aspects on the digital health analysis which were presented on ISPOR. Obviously, there might have been maybe some further posters, but we've just selected some. The fourth bucket we just put down, let's say under a world concept or so global concept, and we've just seen that this might be maybe as well relevant in other jurisdictions. My team colleagues have analyzed, for example, submissions for 65 non-oncology drugs between 2012 and 2022 in Canada with respect to differences in terms of target population, annual therapy costs, and cost-effectiveness ratios. Interestingly, the correlation between a low population size and high cost and ICERs should be shown. However, unexpectedly, the reimbursement decisions body, Cadeth, has still decided positively, even with high costs and ICE values, showing the acceptance of unmet need criteria and similar in the process. Prevolny and colleagues assessed the pharmacoeconomic analysis impact of drug pricing in Canada between rare disease versus oncology therapies. Very interesting analysis. Rare disease drugs were more often successful and also received less often reanalysis requests, including a 90% price discount plus request. Pharmacoeconomic analysis has had an impact on price analysis, but even more the indication of interest. These findings correlate with the results of Mighty et al. also presented at ISPOR this year. Morse and Babu analyzed the unequal excess of innovative dermatology products across Canada. Of the products that have signed PCPA, LOI, that was a very small sample size with N equals 8, percent listing across the drug plans ranged from 25 to 100%. Manitoba, Ontario, and NIHB have 100% coverage of the 8 products. In British Columbia, there was only 25%, so 2 out of 8 products listed. The next lowest is Newfoundland and Labrador at 63%. The analysis demonstrated that the majority of the public drug plans listed at least 68% of the innovative dermatology products that had a PCPA LOI expect in British Columbia, where only 25% of products received listing. This leads to unequal and unequitable excess of innovative dermatology products for patients in British Columbia compared to the rest of Canada. Riley had a deep look on conditional recommendations by CADETH in Canada. Since 2003, around two-thirds of all submissions have been accepted under specific conditions, roughly 20% have been rejected, and the rest were accepted. Conditional recommendations were mainly driven by the clinical evidence base, partly also by cost-effectiveness reasons and pricing. And now, obviously, a large junk of posters, presentation discussions were also on Germany, on the German AMNOC. Pegelo et al. have taken the liberty analyzing the outcomes of 11 years of AMNOC. Only a negligible number of submissions received a major added benefit, 
1 to 3%, including subpopulations. The majority of submissions and subpopulations receive no added benefit, between 38 to 64%. However, in total, 41% of products received no added benefit, so close to 50%. When comparing the price negotiation outcomes, products without an added benefit had an average price discount of 32%, whereas drugs with a positive added benefit had to accept a, on average, 24% price discount. Müller-Herm and colleagues analyzed if the sample size of a target population might have an impact on price negotiation outcomes in Germany. Overall, the evidence base is a key driver in the negotiations. Even with smaller population sizes, there were a good number of RCTs submitted as a basis for the benefit assessment, which likely had an impact on the negotiation results as well. There's a light hint that smaller patient population sizes, even without an RCT, would receive a higher benefit rating, but the interpretation would need to be taken with caution, I would say, given the low number of cases analyzed. Wolf and colleagues assessed the influence of the claimed submitted added benefit by companies versus the decided added benefit by the GBA on the price negotiation outcomes. In 68% of cases, the claimed added benefit was not confirmed by the GBA. The authors concluded that price discounts might be higher in cases where the added benefit was not confirmed and hence downgraded. It, however, would need to be considered that the downgrade, patient population, negotiation tactics and other factors might have had a significant impact on the negotiation results, I think. Do repurposed drugs receive similar results in the AMNOC process in comparison to other drugs? Seik et al. concluded that only a small number of repurposed drugs had to follow the AMNOC process so far. However, the added benefit result was not different for repurposed drugs. However, the price discount was on average 32% versus 20% for other drugs. This result might be chance finding because of low number of repurposed drugs in Germany so far and or might again show the importance of various factors in the price negotiation in Germany besides the added benefit level. Again, something would be added in our analysis. Schwedtfig and colleagues analyzed the evidence requirements in order to improve an added benefit rating by the GBA with new scientific evidence. Within 17 reassessments until May 2022, in 11 cases data from new RCTs were submitted. A higher benefit was granted for 5 out of 17 drugs. Out of these 5, 4 were based on new RCTs, while 1 was based on a more recent study data cut. In five procedures, the manufacturers succeeded in reducing the previously negotiated rebates, although in one-fifth, the benefit rating was not improved. In the remaining 12 procedures, compared to the first assessment, the rebate increased. Very actual assessment because of often drug revenue threshold change was done by Roe et al. They evaluated how reassessments of often drugs were impacted after these have exceeded the 50 million threshold which is in effect until December 31st, 2022, most likely, maybe even be already be changed by November this year. The average discount after the reassessment went up from 20% to 38% with products with a downgrade on the added benefit and up to 37% for drugs with the same added benefit. Drugs with a better added benefit had no change in the agreed discount. So something really taken into account after the just decided changes in the AMNOC law where the threshold for the orphan drugs will be decreased from 50 million to, to 30 million. Bartscheid and colleagues have done a hypothetical analysis what the impact would have been with the decrease of the orphan drug threshold to 20 million. Just kind of follow-up kind of analysis, right? Keep in mind it was not changed to 20 million but to 30 million, but just the analysis is of relevance in any way. We can now use this likely as a good benchmark for the future as politicians have just changed the threshold to 30 million annually. In total, 107 orphan substances were evaluated by the GBA. Of these, 20 exceeded the 50 million euro threshold. Six lost orphan status for other reasons and were excluded from further analysis by the authors. Of the 20 orphans evaluated by standard benefit assessment, 18 did not achieve an additional benefit for at least one indication. For 81 substances, units sold to SHI, to the German health insurance system, and price data were available. While 17 substances exceeded the threshold of 50 million, 
13 additional substances already exceeded the threshold of 20 million. A reduction of the orphan threshold could and will lead to worse outcomes of benefit assessments and therefore lead to earlier reimbursement price reductions, which might in turn decrease the incentive, potentially, to investigate new substances to treat rare diseases. The last part was as well just a conclusion of the authors. At the end of the day, we all know that that's a decision not only made based on one country, but across the different countries. And I think ultimately, as you have maybe also heard in our last episode and the November 1st episode, I personally still think that there are still enough incentives probably in Germany, especially when comparing it to other countries. Berger and colleagues have analyzed the potential impact of watchful waiting as a compared in the AMNOC assessment. In only 45 of all assessments, this was the case, even though that a large proportion of assessments have BC as a comparator, which could be used as a similar approach. Anyhow, on the vast majority of assessment with watchful waiting as a comparator, the added benefit rating was higher than on average. Matean, in contrast, were analyzing the impact of treatment of physician choice as a comparator. In total, 44 of such assessments were identified. However, the authors lacked the impact on the added benefit level and the price discount after the negotiations. It could, however, be assumed, I think, that the impact is similar to situations in which watchful waiting is used as a comparator therapy in the AMNOC environment. Seiledal questioned if real-world data are needed or even already included regularly in German AMNOC dossiers. They have analyzed all Module 3s of submitted and assessed AMNOC dossiers since January 1st, 2011, a lot of work, and concluded that real-world data in the sense of German health insurance claims data are regularly utilized in submissions, primarily to establish the German epidemiologic situation, treatment pattern, and utilization. Arnold tried to answer why the calculation of bundled payment might be so difficult in a German environment. The analysis follows the implementation of a GBA-supported innovation fund project trying to harmonize in- and outpatient care and reimbursement. What could be seen in a large insurance database that payments do stay stable with increasing disease severity in the outpatient setting, whereas costs are increasing with severity in an inpatient setting. The analysis shows the limitation of treatment and reimbursement harmonization between in- and outpatient care in Germany. Not directly relevant, but just thought it's somewhere between. Frequent colleagues have analyzed if drugs in an orphan indication without an orphan drug status would have a different outcome within the German AMNOC process. When comparing the GPA at a benefit assessment as well as a result within the price negotiations, no significant results were, however, identified. And two of my students, Vina and Konsari, did a great job in checking where the special AMNOC process for orphan drugs would go. They have spoken with various key stakeholders and also compared results as well as current political debates with other countries. If the latest political changes will be the last, given the fact that no special orphan drug pathways are implemented in other countries, is questionable. So what was your key finding in your research? So thank you for your question, Dr. Walzer. Well, there are several aspects we identified. Uh, I would suggest we focus on the most important findings. So looking at the analysis on Solgensma, we found that the results of the benefit assessments varied widely. For example, the individual countries have used different appropriate comparator therapies. What we would like to highlight is that Germany is ranked number one in Europe in terms of both. So time of availability and rate of availability of orphan drugs. And regarding the recommendations for action for the AMNOC reform, um, the experts proposed various options. So um, these include the lowering of the sales threshold from 50 million euro to 20 million euros, or the retaining of the orphan drug rule for therapeutic soloists. And um, maybe one aspect that we would like to add, it is questionable whether 97 SHI are really necessary. When you look at France, where they have essentially three, or the UK, where there is only the NHS, so the National Health Service. Okay, perfect. So why is your research of relevance to the market access community? So, well, uh, I think there are some aspects and results that could be uh, interesting for the community. For example, we surveyed the status quo of orphan drugs in Germany. 
and we contribute with uh, our findings to current discussion about the special path for orphan drugs in Germany. With our analysis on Zolgensma, uh, we were also able to show how differently countries approach uh, the evaluation of orphan drugs. And this could be uh, of relevance for the community. Perfect. Klusenendal analyzed the impact of the arbitration board on prices in Germany. Their conclusion was as follows. The appointed level of benefit for drug and the benefit resolution had no influence on whether the arbitration office was involved. However, undergoing the arbitration board leads on average to higher rebates for drugs. That means that AP seem to be decided to the disadvantage of pharmaceutical companies. These high rebates lead to significantly increased withdrawal rate from the German market. The reimbursement amount, which is highly dependent on the benefit level, I would question that, seems to correlate with the frequency of market withdrawals. And another bucket which we identified was basically Europe in general. Casley analyzed the potential positive impact on the time until regulatory approval with Project Orbis in the UK. Overall, 11 products have been approved by the MHRA in the UK through the FDA-initiated Project Orbis pathway, resulting in a 2.1-month early approval in comparison to the EMA. One would need to ask the additional question, I would say, if the time advantage would potentially maybe even be larger, as companies most likely would have first approached the US FDA and then European EMA before submitting to other individual countries. Hence, the 2.1-month time advantage is likely, in my opinion, an underestimation. Given the low number of cases yet, further research is obviously needed. Also, Richie et al. recommended that Project Orbis should be taken to market access planning considerations. They highlighted the pemperizumab in advanced endometrial carcinoma, where the FDA finished their review three months ahead of schedule, and Project Orbis led to simultaneous approval in the US, Canada, and Australia. Sansegundo Gonzalez raised the question if flat pricing of drugs might be an opportunity across Europe, even though only four product categories have been selected for the analysis. Within these remits in France and UK, flat pricing was seen in these categories, whereas a mixed picture was seen in Spain and Germany. In Italy, a trend for linear pricing was observed. Local pricing regulations might be a co-driver of flat price implementation, their conclusion. Our friends from Remap, Foxon and colleagues evaluated potential trends in reimbursement across Europe for orphan drugs. Germany continuously provides the most robust patient access to orphan drugs, owing to the strategy of no limiting the access during the price negotiation. Wide access to ODs is maintained in France, despite an increased percentage of orphan drugs still in the price negotiation due to the early access program. The largest improvement can be seen in Italy, probably which corresponded to the legislative changes in the price negotiation process and the COVID-19 mitigation strategies. In England, the increased percentage of positive recommendation coincides with increased median time to reimbursement, presumably due to a higher number of ODs in the reimbursement process. With issues identified in previous research prevailing, Spain remains the most challenging market. Dickhuis and colleagues assess the payer and HCA agency acceptance of external comparator studies in hemato-oncology drugs with a single-arm evidence base. 51 EMA approvals in hemato-oncology were identified, of which 29% were based exclusively on SAT data, so single-arm trial data. Regulatory approvals based on single-arm trial data were more common in later years, 27% in 2018-19 versus 31% in 2022 at 2020-2022. That is really a significant difference with those low numbers. We've just seen 22 in overall submissions in the first part of the years and 29 in the latter part. For these 15 indications, 48 HA submissions with single-arm trial data as the main type of evidence were identified. In 88% of submissions, an European Commission approval was provided. In 83% of submissions with an EC, at least one of the ECs had a real-world evidence component. 57% of ECs were found inappropriate, unusable for decision-making, 19% were found acceptable and were used to inform the decision, and 24%, meaning 10 out of 42, 
were considered uncertain and or it was unclear if they were used in the recommendation. Redvelats and colleagues raised a very specific but important technical question with respect to the EU joint HDA again, packed a bit in the European discussion. Would requirements for systematic literature searches increase with a new process on a European level? The expectation is that the European SLR will become more broader, including RCTs, non-RCTs, different comparators, and will likely need to be not older than three months in order to satisfy a majority of national HDA agencies and payers across the EU. My friend Chochi and further colleagues, including myself, have assessed the innovative value framework in the EU4 and the UK. The analysis frame is a comparison of the Italian innovative frame with decisions on those products already identified by the IFA and in the other analyzed countries. Listen what Entella is saying to that. Innovation Value Framework Evidence from U4 and UK is the title of our poster at eSport 2022 in Vienna. Um, the objective is to, um, to analyze variability of HTA decisions, um, even that although various initiatives have been launched in recent years, ratings still differ significantly between European countries in terms of the variability of the approach uh, of the legislative framework that regulates the activities of the national agencies regarding the HTA. Um, and the aim of this analysis was to compare the value framework from uh, HTA bodies in U4, Italy, Spain, France and Germany and UK in assessing the same drug, same therapeutic indications. Starting and considering that for um, IFA, uh, for, I, for Italy, all the indications in analysis have received the highest level of value recognitions, we have identified three groups to analyze the accordance and specifically we um, we focus on the first group. So um, first group is uh, the complete agreement, second group partial agreement and third disagreement or lack of alignment. Uh, descriptive statistics were conducted, con quantitative data were expressed as frequency and percentage, contingency tables were uh, used to analyze the associations between assessment on innovative status taken by the different HTA bodies in U4 and UK included in our analysis and also concordance was assessed as raw agreement in percentage and the flyscape kappa was estimated. Um, we hope that this uh, debate and these presentations will be part of the uh, huge debate um, um, how you know, uh, potentially the way market access will look in the next years. Our results that are based uh, specifically on 30 therapeutic indications, so only innovative drugs recognized by IFA for 24 medicinal products, um, compare uh, to IFA and referring to the group one, so complete agreement between different HDA assessment, uh, NICE recognized around 56% percentage of cases, uh, HAS around 63%, GBA 36%, and for Spain, um, EMS uh, around 43%. In these cases, so uh, these bodies, uh, HT bodies are aligned in their decisions, so with different percentage. And these preliminary results underline the importance of implementing transparency procedures in terms of the value definitions. Um, and also, um, it's uh, obvious that um, further analysis is needed to detail drug assessment by uh, HTA bodies uh, in these countries. Our work uh, is in line with our recent publications in Frontiers medical technology in 2021, so this year, um, on value assessment of medicinal products by the Italian Medicines Agency, IFA, and French National Authority for Health has similarities and discrepancies. And these results uh, also underline the importance of implementing procedures that are characterized by a greater transparency in terms of the value definitions criteria used by HTA bodies, as well as the importance of the ensuring that European health technology assessment are as standardized and harmonized as possible with the expected effect in terms of pricing or reimbursement of medicines, access to treatments. And the new regulations of the HTA could be a test case for national authorities. Smith, Hay and others assessed if and how daily defined doses, DDDs, and ATC 
classification might have an impact on market access. In Germany, DDDs are being used. In France, ATC classification is utilized. In Spain, both measures are being used when a drug lost patent. ATC classification to assign a reference price group and DDDs to define its utilization and hence price. In Italy, potential paybacks are being defined by ATC groups and DDDs define the reimbursement level. The UK does not use ATC nor DDDs in their reimbursement decisions. Patel, Ahmad and Shah did one of the very few analyses so far in what we discussed already a year ago in our November 2021 webinar around the US elections. How could the US reference pricing impact the EU? They tried to discuss the issue with European payers who did not expect any major issues or impacts on the European pricing, especially as the confidentiality of pricing will likely continue also in the US. And finally, Tomaszkowski and colleagues have analyzed the acceptance of real-world data and single-arm evidence cases by HTA agencies and regulators. HTA agencies, very interesting finding, were more willing to accept real-world evidence as an evidence package for single-arm trials when real-world evidence data were also submitted to regulatory agencies, albeit the overall evidence package might differ. This was the very special is poor podcast episode. Feel free if you have any specific further requests on a, on a very specific poster or discussion or on a bucket we have identified. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.